Well, hopefully, New Breed, you have your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 12, and I want to begin this morning by just reading verses 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1 and reading just those first two verses. The author records this, therefore, therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. Verse 2, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, again, good morning. It is it is good to uh, to be with you. Uh, if you're if you're tuning in and you're not uh, from New Breed, my name's Michael Matala. I'm one of the pastors here at New Breed Church, and privileged to to open God's Word with you this morning. And it is it is good to gather again. It is good to hear uh, from the Lord through His Word. And I don't, I don't know about you, but I am, I am very thankful that no matter what is going on around us in this world, the Word of God is sufficient, and the Word of God is available, and the Word of God is powerful. I'm reminded of 2 Peter 1.3, which reminds us that His divine power his, has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. His divine power has been given to us. Everything that we need for life and godliness, and it comes through the knowledge of Him. So I am, I am thankful to open the Word of God with you and to consider this idea of running with endurance. Of running with endurance. And I, I believe this is a timely word for us. You know, this is our fourth week apart from one another. You know that before, we, uh, before, before this happened and when we were still gathering, we were just starting a series through the book of Habakkuk, and I do plan to jump back into that here soon, even though we will not be together. I'm, I'm hoping to, to do something a little special for next week as we consider Resurrection Sunday, knowing that we will celebrate it in its fullness when we are able to gather back together whenever that is, because we celebrate the resurrection all the time and we can celebrate the resurrection anytime and when we are able to come back together what a perfect time to celebrate the resurrection of our king but again this is this is our fourth week apart and in this month many things have changed we are experiencing uh, the reality of of this pandemic that that is easily spread uh, and it can run the gamut from, from having no symptoms whatsoever to dehabilitating sickness that has unfortunately resulted in the loss of a great deal of life. And we are, or we should be, changing the patterns of our life during this season. And we should be changing the patterns of our life during this 
season. Many people, though not everyone, uh, but many people are not able to work at their places of employment, and, and many have lost employment during the season. Even some of us uh, at New Breed, the, there has been a loss of employment during this season, and this has raised some questions of how, how you will provide for yourself and for your family. There are many students who are having to adjust how they learn because they're not able to be in a classroom to be instructed. There are many parents who are trying to figure out how to be a teacher during this time because children are not able to be in the classroom to be instructed by teachers. And even we as the people of God, we are for many of us feeling the strain. Well, all of us should be feeling the strain of not meeting together, of not hugging one another, of not seeing each other's faces as we are called to do life together. And again, for many of us, but not all, but for many of us, these changes have been tough. And they have created new struggles and uncertainties. And for some people, their faith has been tested. Their faith has been questioned. And for some, if you are honest, your faith has been shaken. Especially as we are wondering what is around the next turn. And there are some of us who are taking this in stride. And we, we praise God for that. We praise God that, that for some this hasn't, this hasn't uh, stifled uh, much of life as they know it. And that is okay. And, and there are some that are, that are rolling with this very well. And again, we praise God for that because that means we are seeing God as our refuge and our strength in a time of trouble. And it is good. And it is, it is good to take it in stride. And again, we, we praise God for that. But regardless of where you are, this passage that we just read, And Hebrews 12 is a timely reminder for all of us of our call to run this race of faith with endurance, to endure in this world, holding fast to our faith and hope with eyes fixed on what is to come. Because for many of us, we might be saying, I don't know how I'm going to endure this season. These changes have been tough. I don't know what this looks like forward there there are still uncertainties and and my call to you this morning my, my plea to you is to continue to run this race of faith with endurance and so what I want to do this morning is offer you from these two verses four steps that we can take to run with endurance four steps that we can take to run with endurance. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump right in because I, I got a lot I want to try to work through this morning. So here, here is the first step. Consider the example of the saints who have gone before. Consider the example of the saints who have gone before. Look at the beginning of verse 1. As the author is calling us to run with endurance, he writes, Therefore, since we also have such a, a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, in order to understand that statement in the great cloud of witnesses, we have to understand what came before this, right? Uh, as some would say, we have to know what the therefore is there for, right? So we need to know what came before this, specifically chapter 11, to understand this idea that we have such a large crowd of witnesses surrounding us. And so when you jump back to the beginning of chapter 11, it begins in verses 1 and 2 and says, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. Now notice verse 2. For by it our ancestors won God's approval. 
So Hebrews 11 is what what is often called the the hall of faith. As God recounts to us through the author uh, faithful saints who have gone before us. And we see examples of faith that resulted in endurance. So let me just kind of run through quickly uh, uh, Hebrews 11. So Hebrews 11 reminds us that by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. That's verse 3. And, and by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. Verse 4. By faith, Enoch was taken away, and so he did not experience death. Verse 5. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. Verse 7. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive an inheritance. By faith, Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after being marched around by the Israelites for seven days. And by faith, Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. And and then it gets to verse 32. And in verse 32, the author writes this. And what more can I say? I love this part. He says, time is too short for me to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who by conquered kingdoms, administered justice, foreign armies to fight, received their dead, raised to life again, other tortured, accepted so that they might gain a better bonds and imprisonment were shown they were sought into they died by the sword they wandered about sheepskins and goatskins and hear this the world is not worthy of them by faith and these are examples to us of faith. But, but I want to be clear about something. The purpose is not for us to focus on what they did through faith. The point of this is verse 2 of chapter 11, of what they received because of faith. For by it, for by faith, for by it, our ancestors won God's approval. It was because of their faith that they endured and made it to the end and stood before God and heard, well done, good and faithful servant. They received their reward because of their enduring faith. Now hear me, church, and this is very important. It does not mean that they were perfect. It does not mean they earned God's favor because they did everything right. They had flaws, and yet they had faith. I mean, think about it. Abraham tried to force God's promise by sleeping with Hagar and having a son. 
Noah, after he left the ark, got drunk and slept with his daughter. Moses, because of his sin, was not permitted to enter the promised land. And David, King David, slept with Bathsheba and had her husband killed and lost a son as punishment. They had real flaws. And so this chapter, chapter 11, does not teach us that they earned God's favor because they did everything right. This is saying that they did what was right, that when they did what was right, it was because of their faith. The fact that they endured and made it to the end despite falters and missteps and failures along the way was because of their faith in God that was given to them by God. And the author of Hebrews, then, after this incredible chapter of chapter 11, he says, therefore, in light of all of that, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, he calls us to run with endurance. Run the race, knowing that you have a great cloud of witnesses. But notice this. He doesn't use witnesses as in spectators. He is not speaking to them as as, as people in an arena watching other people run this race. That's not what he means when he says witnesses. He's not talking about spectators, but he is speaking of them as examples. That they are witnesses and testimonies to us that running this race of faith with endurance is worth it. Because after we have run this race well and have received the approval of God, we will dwell with him for all of eternity. They are testimonies to us that God is faithful. But notice also that he says that they are a large cloud. Of witnesses, a large cloud. You see, we have testimony after testimony after testimony of the fact that God is faithful. As saints before us ran the race of faith that was before them, God was faithful to deliver on his promises, even, even when they, the race that they ran was one marked by struggle and hardship and uncertainty. Their stories and their lives and their testimonies declare to us that God is faithful. Tom Schreiner, in his commentary on the book of of Hebrews, he notes this. He says, the author emphasizes the large number of witnesses. Perhaps he does so to impress on the readers that many have run the race before them. They are not alone or the only ones to suffer and endure. I don't know about you, church, but that is such an encouragement to me. That, that, that as a believer, I am not alone if I suffer and yet endure. We are not alone if we suffer and endure because there are testimonies of countless saints who have gone before us of enduring yet suffering and having hardship, but making it to the end because God is faithful. Now, I want to say one last thing about this cloud of witnesses. I think often we can look at these individuals, we can read Hebrews chapter 11 and think they are unique, they are superior, they are the pinnacle of what faith should look like. But I want to remind you of something, that even as the author calls us to think about these individuals, 
They are not given to us as the unique experiences of faith. They are not given to us as the superior experiences of faith, but rather as the example of what all of our faith should look like. Because anything good that they did and anything that they endured and everything that they made it through was not because they were so great. It was not because they were unique in their personhood. It was because God had given them, had shown them grace to grant them faith and through that faith they endured. They are not the pinnacle. They are the example for all of us of what faith should look like. Again, they did nothing special on their own. They are praised in this passage, hear me, they are praised in this passage not ultimately for the great works they did, but ultimately for their faith. And that faith, which as we will soon see, was given to them by God. And it is the same gift that he gives each and every one of his children. And so church, if we want to run with endurance, if we want to run this race of faith and make it to the end, one step that we can take in doing that is to consider the example of the saints who have gone before us. Not to say, look at how great they are, but to say, look at how amazing our God is, who has endured saints from different backgrounds and different stories and different settings. And by his grace and his power and his might, he has endured them to the end. God is faithful. So we have to consider the example of the saints who have gone before us. But second, church, if we want to run with endurance, We have to lay aside any hindrance. We have to lay aside any hindrance. Look at what comes next there in verse 1. He says, Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. You see, here is what the author wants us to know by that statement. You cannot run with endurance with your legs tied. You cannot run with endurance while you are chained down. You see, what the author is trying to help us see is that there are hindrances in our life and there is sin that we refuse to deal with. And if those things are present and undealt with, They will prevent us from running well. The call then is to lay aside every hindrance and sin. And I want to take just a minute and look at these two things, but but I actually want to do it in reverse order. So first, let's start with sin. Let's consider this. You know, that's a pretty self-explanatory statement, you know, what he means there of, of lay aside any sin that ensnares, right? Sin hinders our ability to run this race of faith well. It hinders us from running with endurance. Sin will stifle this run. And as Christians, listen, we have to be people who daily wrestle with our sin, who daily wrestle with our sin. And moment by moment by moment, we we seek to kill the sin that is present in our life. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 20, but that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is is in Jesus. And it says this, to take off your former way of life 
The old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and then to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. And so Paul writes there in Ephesians 4 that part of, part of walking out this Christian life, part of being sanctified is that day by day we kill more of that old self. We take off that old self that is corrupted by sin and evil desires and we replace it with what is righteous and what is good and with what is holy and this is a fight it takes our pursuing what is righteous and what is good it takes the power of the holy spirit working on our behalf but time does not remove sin i love what c.s lewis writes when he says we have a strange illusion that mere time cancels sin But mere time does nothing either to the fact or to the guilt of a sin. Church, the only way we grow to look more like Jesus is through the process of killing sin, through the power of the Holy Spirit. The only way we will run with endurance is as we begin to shed those ropes of sin that so easily entangle us. And church, I want to be honest with you for just a minute. When it comes to killing sin, you are not strong enough to do this by yourself. This is why God has given us two incredible gifts. He has given us the Holy Spirit and he has given us the church. So, so let me just press into those. God has given us the Holy Spirit in this process of sanctification, in this process of looking more like Jesus. You are not the only one at work. Because you are in Christ and Christ is in you, the Spirit of God dwells within you and he is fighting for your holiness and for your sanctification. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. The Holy Spirit pushes you to righteousness. The Holy Spirit is at work to make you look more like Jesus. Praise God. So you don't have to do it by yourself. But another gift that God gives us is the church. It is the body of Christ. And and I want you to know that when we are dealing with sin, when we are wrestling with it, one of the greatest things that we can do is pull it out of the darkness and bring it into the light and be brutally transparent and honest with the brothers and sisters in covenant community with us. And God has given us one another as a gift to help fight for holiness. And that scares us. And we don't often want to do that that, but we need one another, right? We've got to be, get beyond these cliche explanations of sin, these, these weak pictures of what is actually a deep, nasty part of us, and just lay ourselves bare before our brothers and sisters, not so that they will judge us, not so that they will condemn us, so that they can step into this and fight for our holiness alongside of us. We need one another. And church, I want to say this as well. We, the one who is wrestling with sin, we have to be responsible to go to other people. We can't always wait for someone to ask us how we're doing or ask us how our heart is or what sin we are wrestling with. We can't always wait for that time in community group when we get to share some of those deep recesses of our heart. There are times and it is necessary for us as believers to be responsible to go to other Christians and confess sin without prompting by them, to confess what is going on and to to ask them to step into this fight with us. We need one another because we are not strong enough to conquer sin on our own. But I want you to notice that the author of Hebrews does not only mention sin. He also mentions hindrances. 
to set aside any hindrance that prevents you from running well. Now, this would encompass sin, but I believe it extends beyond sin because there are areas that are not not necessarily sin and they are not in and of themselves wrong, right? So we could say they're not objectively sinful and yet they can hinder us from running the race of faith with endurance well. You know, I remember hearing... uh, uh, Pastor Matt Chandler preached a sermon once. I'm just kind of paraphrasing what he said. This isn't a quote, but I, but I remember that in his sermon, he, he talked about the fact that, that for most Christians, it's not usually the areas that are black and white that trip us up. It's not usually the areas that are black and white that we stumble in or are unsure about. We know when sin is sin. And we know when righteousness is righteousness if we are in Christ, right? It's not normally the black and white areas, but what normally gets us, what normally hinders us and hinders our walk and our faithfulness is enduring well is the gray areas. The areas that that aren't necessarily all righteous and aren't necessarily totally sinful. And what he was getting at is that there are areas that are not objectively sinful, but they can become hindrances and therefore become sinful. There are areas that if you engage in too much or not enough can become hindrances and stumbling blocks in your pursuit of Jesus as you run this race of faith with endurance. They can become stumbling blocks. Let me try to, try to give you an example of a gray area to help you understand what I'm, what I'm talking about. I think a gray area for many Christians is your family. Now, you might be thinking, well, hold on, man. How is, how is your family even remotely gray? That's a, that's a good thing. That's a gift from God. Well, well let me explain. I think that, that a gray area would be wanting to provide protection for your family. Wanting to provide protection for your family. And here's what I mean by that, because that can go either way. That can be a righteous thing or that can be a sinful thing depending on which way you take it. So, so how would it look if you took it a sinful way? If you want to provide protection for your family at the expense of being faithful to the call that Jesus has placed on your life as a believer, well, well, that ceases to be a gray area. That becomes a hindrance that then is sinful, that is hindering your running this race well. But if you want to protect your family well as you are called to do in Scripture, right? If you want to love them and serve them well, but yet you are always willing to put Jesus first, I I think that that is a beautiful thing and you are running well, but objectively speaking, protecting your family could be a gray area, right? So there are, what what I'm getting at is that there are gray areas in life that can often trip us up. It's not usually the the, the black or or the white issues, right? I know, I know objectively that if I go out and shoot up heroin into my arm, it is sinful. That's not a struggle for me. I don't have an issue understanding that that is a sin area. That That is a hindrance that will clearly stop me from running this race well I don't struggle with that but where I often struggle is in those gray areas where they could go either way and so we have to be on guard and that's what the author is calling us to to lay aside any hindrance anything that will stop us from running this race of faith well if we are going to run this race well we have to lay aside Every hindrance, if we are going to run this race well, we have to take off those sinful patterns that so easily ensnare us. And notice how it said that sin so easily ensnares. Isn't that true? I mean, sin is so tricky and it can trap us so fast before we even know sometimes what we're doing. 
And so we want to be on guard to avoid sin that so easily ensnares us. Before we move on to the third step, I would encourage you that if you're, if you're sitting there thinking, man, that is great, and I want to do that, and I need to figure out what those hindrances are and what those sin, sin areas in my life are that so easily ensnare me, and you're not sure where to start, I would, just, I would encourage you to pray, if you are a believer, to pray to the Holy Spirit that indwells you to just give you eyes to see where you need to grow, because the Holy Spirit will answer that prayer. And the Holy Spirit will, will give you keen insight into areas where you are not running well. You just have to be ready to listen and to act when he shows you. But here's the, the third step in running with endurance. And I believe that this point is especially valuable during this season that we are in. We have to discipline ourselves. We have to discipline ourselves. Look there at the very end of verse 1 where the author writes, Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. You know, some of you might not know this about me, so I'll share a little bit of insight um, with you. Uh, You might not know that I had a a short career, uh, and it was short, but a short career as a a cross-country runner in middle school. It was short, but it was a good career, but I, but I was a, a cross-country runner. I actually feel like I got duped a little bit uh, because we were in science class, and I didn't know that the science teacher was the cross-country coach, and so he was trying to teach us about the scientific method, about hypothesis and, and, and you know, variables and all this stuff, and so we made our hypothesis, and, and it, the science experiment was he wanted to see which athletes, which people who played sports were best at long-distance running, and so you had to go and kind of list the sports that you most actively play. At that time, I was all about some street hockey, right? So, you know, the rollerblades and the sticks and trying not to hit cars. With, with, with the hockey ball, and um, so I was like, yeah, I, you know, I'm a hockey player, which I wasn't really, but I thought I was, uh, and so then he's like, well, we're going to test and see who's the best long-distance runner, and so we go outside, uh, this was at Mazique Middle School, right, and so we run around Mazique Middle School like five times, and I won, uh, I was the fastest in our class, and I'm thinking like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm killing this science experiment, and then immediately afterwards, he said, you should join the cross-country team. And I realized that it was all a ploy for him to, to get runners. But, but I did. I, I ran in middle school. Um, and, and that year, we actually we, we made it to state. We ran in state at the, the horse farm there in Lexington. Uh, and it was at that state race, the last race of the season, that I realized that cross-country running wasn't for me. Uh, it was actually uh, the, the longest I had ever run in competition. Uh, not practice, because... It, because you know, running in competition is always different than running in practice because you actually have to control your body better. You have to discipline your body better in competition because your adrenaline is flowing more, right? When you're out running around a building by yourself and practicing, your adrenaline is not flowing, but you have to guard yourself, right? That when, they, when, when that gun shoots in a, in a competition, that you don't start off too fast, that you don't let your adrenaline get the best of you, that you have disciplined your body so that you can pace yourself and make it to the end of the race. But the reason, I want to go back to this, that I knew that cross-country running wasn't for me was because we were about three-fourths of the way through the race, and I was, I was feeling it, I was hurting, uh, and something happened that happens to many cross-country runners. I had to use the bathroom. And I remember saying out loud as I was running, you know, not paying attention to who was around me, he's like, oh, I really need to use the bathroom. And some runner ran by me from another team, and I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, just go while you run. It's what we all do. 
At that moment, I knew that cross-country running wasn't for me, and I ran off the course and ran to a porta potty that was there for spectators and ran back on, so my time was a little slower. But, but in this, this season of running, I learned some things about races. I'm thankful for my time running competitively because I feel like it helps me understand this picture of a race a a little bit better, especially a long race. You see, one of the things that I learned in cross-country running, one of the things that I learned in cross-country running was that you, you don't always know what's at the top of the hill. You don't always know what's around the next turn. Sometimes it's flat ground, which allows you to run in stride with ease. Sometimes it's downhill, which requires you to slow down and not run faster than your feet can handle. And sometimes at the top of a hill or around a curve is another hill. And it is hard and it is painful and you have to grit your teeth and you have to keep running And I feel like right now for many of us, in this season that we are in as a nation and as a world, we are running uphill and it's hard and our legs are tired and we don't know what's at the top. We don't know what's around the next curve. We don't know if there will be a moment of respite. We don't know if there will be another hill to climb immediately after we finish this one. There are a lot of unknowns. But what I do know is that if we are going to run with endurance and if we are going to make it to the end of this race, if we are going to hear well done, good and faithful servants and and persevere with endurance, the only way we can do that is by disciplining ourselves. I mentioned that earlier on, that that was one of the great challenges of competitive running was discipline your body, especially when that adrenaline starts flowing, especially when you're in that unique season, when the competition starts to make sure you don't take off out of the gate and after mile one have nothing left in the tank, but to make sure you can make it to mile two and to mile three and to mile four and to mile five and on and on and on until you cross that finish line. And the only way we do this is with discipline. And Paul understood this. Paul understood this idea of discipline in the Christian life, which is why he wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27, even keeping with the same analogy, he says, don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize. And he says this, run in such a way to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown. But notice this, he says, but we, an imperishable crown. An imperishable crown. And then he goes on, he says, so I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. See, Paul speaks of the fact that he wants to discipline himself so that he can run in such a way as to win the prize and so that he will not be disqualified. And discipline, church, discipline takes work. It means cultivating habits and patterns that will help us as we run this race. 
It means cultivating the the spiritual disciplines that will keep our faith strong when the race gets hard and it will get hard. It means clinging to the word of God and, and clinging to God through prayer. It means not neglecting to meet together. It means disciplining yourself. And this discipline takes real work. And we have to be willing to do that work if we are going to run with endurance. And in order to maintain this discipline, we have to have our eyes set on the right thing. And this leads to our final point this morning, our final step in running with endurance. If we are going to run this race of faith with endurance, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. We have to fix our eyes on Jesus. Look at verse 2. The author writes, keeping our eyes on Jesus the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If we are going to run this race of faith with endurance, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. And in this verse, in verse 2, the author gives us four reasons why we fix our eyes on Jesus. And I want to move through these quickly. Four reasons we fix our eyes on Jesus. Here's the first reason, because Jesus is the source of our faith. Jesus is the source of our faith. This echoes a truth that the author has already established in Hebrews 2, verse 10, where he says, For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the source of their salvation perfect through suffering. It's talking about Jesus, that, that, that the source of their salvation would be made perfect through suffering. Jesus Christ is the source of our faith, and he is the source of our salvation. And that means, church, that he is the one who gives us faith, and he is the one who keeps us in faith. That's why when we read chapter 11 in that hall of faith there, our response should not be, look at how great and how superior those saints who have gone before us are compared to us. No, church, when we read Hebrews 11, our response should be, look at how great and how superior our Jesus is, the source of their faith. But here's the second reason. Not only is Jesus the source of our faith, But we keep our eyes fixed on him because he is the perfecter of our faith. He is the perfecter of our faith. And I love what what Dr. Moeller writes about this word perfecter in his commentary. And he, he writes this. He says, by perfecter, he means finisher or the one who completed it. Christ's work was perfect when he said it is finished. He goes on, he says, and when the father honored his obedience by raising him from the dead, Christ's work is still perfect today. As the author has made abundantly clear, Jesus continues to act as our mediator and will succeed in bringing his people home. Now listen to this. I love this. He says, in other words, Christ has done all things necessary to secure our salvation and he will see his work through to 
the end. And church, this ought to be such good news to us because this reminds us that ultimately it is Jesus who brings our faith to completion. It is Jesus who brings our faith to perfection. That means that when I falter and when I fail and when I lose my step in this race of faith, I don't lose my faith. Because it doesn't depend on me. Jesus, is the source, is also the keeper and the perfecter of faith. That is why when we read the commendation of those in chapter 11, their faith is still praised though they faltered and failed and some of them in monumental ways because Jesus kept them. And this ought to give us a desire to keep running after we fall, to press on when we stumble, because our Savior will not let us go. That is why Paul declares that when we are faithless, he is faithful, because he cannot deny himself. And that is why the author of Hebrews writes confidently that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, because even when we fall, and even when we trip, and even when we misstep, Jesus keeps us. He keeps us because Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. Here's the third reason that we fix our eyes on Jesus. Not only is he the source of our faith, not only is he the perfecter of our faith, but Jesus endured perfectly. Jesus endured perfectly and so we fix our eyes on him. It says there in verse 2 that for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus endured the cross because he knew what waited on the other side. He knew that through the cross, salvation would be won. He would pay for the sin of the world that had rebelled against God the Father, and he would provide a way of salvation where we could be reconciled. But even more importantly than that, there was a greater joy than that. He knew that by enduring the cross, that the name and the glory of God would be magnified and that would be his joy. And church, the reason that we keep our eyes on Jesus as he endured perfectly is because if we are honest, we will never know suffering like Jesus knew. We will never know suffering like him. I mean, consider the weight of the words that you hear from me almost every week. And it doesn't change that much in delivery. But but I want you to consider the gospel for a moment. That we, sinners, rebelled against God. Romans tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Meaning we don't measure up. We don't meet his standard. We cannot dwell with him because of our sin. We are eternally separated from him, left on our own. And yet the Bible teaches us in John 3.16 that for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. He sent Jesus and Jesus came to live the perfect life that we should live but we can't and to die the death that we deserve. But I want you to think about this, why we will never know suffering like Jesus knew it because when Jesus went to the cross and took the guilt and the shame and the condemnation and the wrath and the judgment and the anger of God on our behalf so that we would be made right with him, he took it so that we would never experience it. 
We would never feel that wrath of God. We would never feel that anger and that hatred of sin poured out on an individual because Jesus died in our place that he might redeem us and bring us into right relationship with the Father. We will never suffer like Jesus suffered. Never. And so if Jesus endured for the joy that was set before him, we too can endure lesser sufferings and lesser pain for the joy that is set before us of making much of the name and the glory of God and magnifying who he is. We can endure well because Jesus is our example and he is our source and the perfecter and our strength. He is our strength. When you consider the gospel, that God has made a way for sinners to be made right with him and that what that demanded was a payment for sin and Jesus took that for us. That will drive us to endure well. And here's the fourth reason that we are called to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. It's because Jesus' faithfulness was rewarded. Jesus' faithfulness was rewarded. It says at the end of verse 2 that he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Church, this is a testimony to us. Brothers and sisters, we run this race of faith and we endure every hardship along the way, believing and claiming the promise that our faith will be rewarded, something we don't deserve yet is guaranteed to us because of Christ. I love this quote from St. Augustine that I've shared with you many times before because it is so meaningful to me where he writes that faith is to believe in what you do not see and the reward of this faith is to see what you believe. And church, we run this race believing what God says, that blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised God has promised, God has promised to those who love him. And my prayer, church, is that when we near the finish line, when we are coming to the end of this race, that we can say like Paul in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8, where he writes, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. And he says, And I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. And he says, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And he says, and not only me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Church, in order to have that testimony, we must have faith. And run with endurance. 